Mississippi and surrounding galaxies. I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo, internist pediatrician here along with my special guest, Dr. Sheila Bolden, obstetrician gynecologist, and you're listening to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Each week we're here to talk about medical issues and topics that are important to you, and this week it's all about women's problems, and we've got a women's expert. We want all of you to take part in the show, so get your questions ready and give us a call or shoot us an email. That number is 1-877-MPB-RING or 1-877-672-7464. Again, that's 1-877-MPB-RING or 1-877-672-7464. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. MPBonline.org. MPB Think Radio. Welcome to this week's live version of Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo, Professor of Medicine and Pediatrics, here with my colleague, Dr. Sheila Bolden, Bolden, uh, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology, who is a Mississippi native. And we're going to be talking about women's issues. And while the news was on, we talked about all the list of women's issues. So if you have a topic you would like to get answered, please call us early rather than late. We usually get calls jammed in at the end of the program, and we have open lines now at one eight seven seven mpb ring or one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or we can take your email at southernremedy at mpbonline.org. So you can get to us lots of ways, and we'd love to have you participate in today's shows. Dr. Bolden, thank you so much for coming and joining us. You're on labor and delivery right now, so uh, you're probably exhausted. Thank you, Dr. DeShazo, for inviting me. I'm happy to be here this morning. Yeah, so what is labor and delivery? What do you do when you're uh, OBGYN and you're doing labor and delivery? When you cover labor and delivery, you are there to deliver babies and— We like to deliver babies and perform C-sections and so forth. So anything that comes in, you're there to handle it. That's great. So there's somebody around all the time, and you supervise our training program. Yes, sir. I'm the residency program director at UMC. Uh, We're getting ready to find out who our new group of residents for next year at the end of this week will be for next year. So OBGYN physicians have gone to medical school for four years. And then they do additional training, and it can be lengthy or it can be sort of the general OBGYN, then a bunch of specialties, right? Yes. The general training for OBGYN is four additional years after medical school. and You have four additional years of residency. And if you decide to specialize in maternal fetal medicine, which deals with high-risk patients, uh, infertility, reproductive endocrinology, um, and GYN Oncology, you spend extra time in subspecialty training. So we have a broad range of topics to talk about at one eight seven seven mpb ring or one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. This is Women's Day. We can talk about menopause. We can talk about papillomavirus and uterine cancer, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, uh, libido issues, vaginal issues, contraception, infertility or whatever is on your mind, those are the things that we 
usually get called about fairly quickly. So let's get the program off and rolling, waiting on your call. Let's go to Andre in Oxford. Hey, Andre. Hi. Thanks for your call. Well, I'm so happy that y'all have chosen this topic today. Well, it's our 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 privilege, and we got an expert. What's your question? Um, my question is about breast tissue density and the risk for breast breast cancer. I've have very dense breast tissue and a history of fibrocystic disease, and so I'm have you know the annual diagnostic mammograms with ultrasound. And recently, my uh, radiologist that I see in Memphis has been increasing the frequency because she said she was concerned um, that I might have an increased risk for breast cancer. And I do have um, breast cancer within my family. So I'd just like for you all to discuss that, please. Okay. And thank you for your question. You know, there's been in our medicine literature as compared to your OBGYN literature a lot of new data coming out on mammograms and frequency of mammograms and so forth that we probably want to talk about. But what about this issue of having a family history of cancer and breast uh, density, dense fibrocystic disease? What is that anyway, fibrocystic breast disease? Fibrocystic breast, um, good morning, Andrea. Uh, Fibrocystic breast disease is a benign condition of the breast. And um, most women that do have fibrocystic breast changes, they often have symptoms of breast tenderness, especially around the time of menstruation. Now, having dense breast tissue makes it difficult sometimes for mammography to be able to uh, visualize any uh, significant changes as far as being able to pick up things for uh, breast cancer. The recommended screening now is to start screening at age 40, and every two years until age 50, and then yearly after that. With the family history of breast cancer, you have to look at the age that uh, that family member was diagnosed with breast cancer to determine if screening needs to be done any sooner than that. So is it 10 years sooner like uh, colonoscopy, or how much sooner do you, you do it, depending on when a first-degree relative had breast cancer? If a first-degree relative has breast cancer, you probably would start screening at the age of 40 uh, as recommended and then determine if, because they're high risk or not, whether or not they need annual screening. Okay, so the fibrocystic breast disease itself is not associated with an increased risk of breast cancer, but it is associated with difficulty in interpreting mammograms. Yes. And since she has a uh, an increased risk because of her family history, uh, that's probably what he's talking about. Yes. Okay. All right. I hope that gave you your answer. We're at one eight seven seven mpb ring waiting to give you your answer. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. And let's go uh, to Juanita. Hey, Juanita. Oh, hey, doctors. Thanks so much for taking my call and glad to be able to ask you this question today. Um, I, I used to, I'm 65 years old and in pretty good health, and I used to be, when I was living elsewhere in another state, used to be checked fairly frequently, several times I would say, for um, ovarian cancer. I think they called it the C125 or something like that. Since, since being here, um, the doctors here have not been too concerned about it and said it was kind of an academic uh, exercise, but it's, it's always in my mind that that's something that should be screened. Is it something that should be screened at my age? Um, and, and if so, what screening should be used? That's All right. 
Uh, good morning, Juanita. Unfortunately, we do not have a screening test for ovarian cancer. The CA125 level is nonspecific. So what is that? Is that some kind of blood test? It's a blood test that um, measures um, a level, an antigen in the blood, and it has been associated with um, ovarian cancer, and we use that particular blood test to follow patients who have been diagnosed with ovarian cancer to see if they're responding to therapy or if they have a reoccurrence of it. We don't use it as a screening test because there's so many other conditions that could cause that test to be elevated. Also, um, using ultrasound to screen for ovarian cancer is not a good uh, test to use as well because then we're going to be looking at certain benign conditions that could cause uh, that could be present and send a patient through a workup and worry unnecessarily. So at the present time, we don't have a screening test for ovarian cancer. And that's one of the biggest holes in medicine right now, isn't it? One of, one of the things we don't do well is uh, have some way to screen for, for ovarian cancer. And it sort of sneaks up on people and there's no way to prevent it. What are the usual presenting symptoms with ovarian problems like that? Well, the thing with ovarian cancer, patients can, I mean, you can present with very vague symptoms. Like you can have abdominal bloating, you can have bowel changes, um, just things that you think normally that could be going on in your gastrointestinal tract. And a lot of times we ignore those symptoms and so forth, but... We don't have a, school, a screening tool. The thing that's most important is that women continue to get their wellness exams on a yearly basis and pretty much pay attention to their bodies. So you can feel the ovary when you do your pelvic exam, right, most of the time? Most of the time we can feel the ovary uh, during our pelvic exams. And in some patients, it depends on the size, whether or not we can actually fill those uh, fill the ovaries at the time of the exam. In those cases, if there's something questionable, then we would proceed with looking with ultrasound. All right. It's Ladies' Day right here on Southern Remedy, and you're listening to a ladies' doctor, Dr. Sheila Bolden. Give us a call at one 672 or 1-877-MPB-RING, and we're going to Canton. Hey, Susan. Uh, good morning. Uh, I'm calling uh, to ask two questions. Um, and one is uh, whether or not uh, if a woman is over 60, um, postmenopausal, and has had a complete hysterectomy, whether she needs to still have a um, um, pap smear. And secondly, if there's any relationship between um, having a tubal ligation and later having an ectopic uh, pregnancy? Very good question, Susan. We have new guidelines as far as pap smears. Uh, the age that initial screening should start is age 21. And um, from 21 to 30, women should have pap smears uh, anywhere from every three to five years. Um, also, you can stop having pap smears at age 65. Now, if you've had normal pap smears, 
you can increase the frequency between your pap smears. But I do want to emphasize that you still need your well woman exam because not only are we doing pap smears, we're doing pelvic exams, exams as well. If you've had a hysterectomy and that hysterectomy was done for benign conditions like fibroids or abnormal bleeding and not for precancerous changes to the cervix, then you do not, you no longer have to have a pap smear. Uh, the other question so so let let me just follow that up and we'll pick up the other question after our break. So what you're what you're saying is that um that you still have to have your annual wellness checks regardless of this pap smear issue. And the doctor's gonna help you with a pap smear issue, so don't stop going in just because you heard you don't have to get them after 65 if everything else is okay. Is that Absolutely, it? Dr. Just Because that is terribly confusing to a lot of people. Same way with the breast, the, the mammograms. Now, the mammograms, you don't have to have those. Some rec- are recommending that you can not have to have those as frequently, too. And we'll talk about that when we get back from this break. And take your question at one 877 6727464 we'll be right back we have open lines Dr. Rick DeShazo here with our special guest, Dr. Sheila Bolden, obstetrician gynecologist extraordinaire, who is the director of our training program in OBGYN at the University Medical Center. She's the one that supervises the making of new obstetricians gynecologists. And we're here taking your questions uh, at the number you just heard, one 877 so after, uh, before the break, we had a question, another question from our last caller about whether or not there is an increased risk for um, having an ectopic pregnancy. We need to explain what that is after a tubal ligation. Now, after a tubal ligation, you're not supposed to get pregnant, right? That is correct. So let's talk about the anatomy. Okay. You know, the, the foot bones connected to the knee bone, <laughs> all those bones. Uh, so, so far as the GYN part of us is concerned, uh, we have a uterus that is connected up top by two ovaries by two tubes, and that's the tubal thing. And uh, the baby basically comes out of the uterus through the vagina, right? That's correct, Dr. DeSazo. Um an ectopic first an ectopic pregnancy is a pregnancy that's found outside of the uterus and one of the most common places that uh, an ectopic pregnancy is found is in the tubes now when you have a tubal ligation you're blocking the tubes so that you do not get a fertilized egg 
that can be transported through the tubes and implanted into the uterus. So the, 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 the egg comes from the ovary through that little tube down into the uterus where it hangs up and stays there until the baby's born, right? Once after fertilization. After fertilization, it stays there until the baby's born. So after tubal ligation, there is a risk if that egg is fertilized and it gets stuck in the tube that you can have an ectopic pregnancy. Now, tubal ligations are considered permanent, but there is a risk of failure. And so if anyone who's had a tubal ligation and they miss a period, then they should do a pregnancy test because they do have an increased risk of pregnancy in the tube. Okay, so what happens uh, when a baby is made is uh, two ducks get together. No, that's not it was swans. Sorry. Uh, two people get together and sperm is emitted from the male, goes through up through the vagina, up through the uterus, through the cervix, a little opening there, and all the way up. How far into the tubes or where? It, where do they usually where does the egg and the sperm usually meet? Well, the egg is released from the ovary. And so it's transported through the tube and meets with the sperm at that area, and that's where fertilization occurs. So it should, that, that, that interaction between the egg and the sperm is supposed to take place in the uterus. Yes. But sometimes the sperm is out of control, and it takes place up in the tube, right? That's correct. And that's not right, because that's you not, end up with a tubal pregnancy. That's and correct. when you have a tubal ligation, the tube's been cut in half, and it shouldn't get it shouldn't get down from the ovary in the first place. So are you saying that sometimes folks screw up on tubal ligations? And how does that happen? Well, it's not necessarily that someone screwed up. It's that sometimes the tube can grow back together over time. That's sneaky, isn't it? It is. So if a period is missed after having your tubes tied, then you definitely need to do a pregnancy test. So that was a great question, and thank you for asking it. If you, Even if you've had tubal ligations and you miss a period, you need to be checked. And a lot of people don't know that, do they? No, sir. And this is Woman's Day right here on Southern Remedy at one 672 7464 That's 1-877-MPB-RING. And we're going to be going to Holly Springs, but we have open lines for your call. Uh, before we go to Holly Springs, uh, a 57-year-old uh, uh, lady has uh, uh, contacted us and says she has a tender nipple. And what does that mean, and should she have it checked out? Having nipple tenderness, uh, you can see that in certain conditions. Now, if the person is postmenopausal, then I definitely will should I would recommend that she see her physician and get a good breast exam and have that evaluated. Um, pregnancy, of course, can cause nipple tenderness or sensitivity in women who are still of reproductive age. Um, certain, increasing um, your caffeine intake uh, with fibrocystic breast can also cause some tenderness as well. But if Someone who's 57 and I'm assuming they're postmenopausal is having a lot of nipple tenderness, then they need to be evaluated with a breast exam to make sure that nothing's going on with the breast. So you can actually have breast cancer present with nipple stuff, right? Absolutely. Just nipple stuff and Absolutely. no lumps. You can't feel lumps. And all of a sudden you have a bloody discharge or some kind of other 
funky thing going on with your nipple. So that is an alarm sign, right? That's an alarm sign. Okay, so uh, you need to go on in and have that checked out right away. It's probably benign, but this, you know, breast cancer is something you can get rid of if you get it early. So you need to get it taken care of. Early detection is the key. Hope that hope that helped you with that question. I'm sorry you're worried with that. Let's go to Cheryl Lynn in Holly Springs. Hey, Cheryl Lynn. Hello. Cheryl Lynn. We'll come back to Cheryl Lynn in just a minute. I think she got lost on the highway there. Um, so we'll, we'll get back to her. Here's a question that we just got by email. Uh, we're at Southern Remedy at mpbonline.org, and you can send us an email or call us at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. I am 53 years old and still having menstrual periods. They are so heavy that sometimes I can't even leave the house. I am currently unemployed and have no health insurance, but I did have a pap test at a health department a few months ago, and it was normal. What should I do next? Okay. That's a good question. Um, The average age of menopause is about 51, but there are some women who will continue to have a menstrual cycle to about age 55. If the cycle is so heavy where you're not able to function, and you should have that evaluated. And what I mean by that, if you're having to change more than a pad an hour or you're bleeding longer than seven days, that needs evaluation. Uh, There are... There are programs out there where you can go and get evaluated for that particular problem, and there's a lot of different therapies out there to treat heavy menstrual cycles at this time. So y'all have a funny name for that, hypermenorrhagia or something like that, right? We call that menorrhagia. Menorrhagia. Okay. So that's exceeding uh, increased amounts of bleeding with your period. And that can occur in old people and young people. With old people, it's more of a worry, right? Um, well, in any anyone who's bleeding in excess of um, seven days in a menstrual cycle, which normal is from averages three to five days, or they're having very heavy periods where they're having to go through so many pads an hour, that's not normal, and we worry in all in all ages because it could lead to anemia as well. Okay, so. Uh, so in let's talk about people who are postmenopausal that suddenly start having uterine bleeding. That's what I was really getting to. I wanted to make sure that people know that if your your periods crank up again, that's another alarm sign I've heard you say. That is a definite alarm sign because once you go through menopause, you should not have any bleeding and you need to see a doctor and be evaluated because you have we have to make sure it's not due to cancer. And there are other reasons that could cause bleeding in someone who's gone through menopause. Um, so an evaluation is the key thing. Go see a gynecologist and get evaluated to make sure it's not cancer or endometrial polyps or just lack of hormones that cause abnormal bleeding in the postmenopausal patient. There's a lot of things that happen in the postmenopausal area we can talk about that are fixable uh, without surgery that are just medical problems like atrophic vaginitis that give folks all kinds of uh, uncomfort discomfort dyspareunia associated with that difficulty having uh, normal relationships give us a call if you want to talk about those things at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 
That's one eight seven seven MPB ring. We have some lines open, and we're going to uh, to Daphne. Hey, is it Adri- Adrienne? Adrienne. Thank you for your call. You folks over in Daphne have wonderful names. That's one of the best places in the world to live. Thanks for your call. Well, thank you. I have a question along the tubal ligation theory or theme. Yep. When when you have your tubes tied, they call it tied, or they did when I got it done, and that was a number of years ago. But they don't really tie them; they cut them, and so your ovary is no longer connected to your uterus. Is that correct, Adrian? Your ovary is still connected. There are ligaments that connect the ovary and the tube to the uterus. So your ovaries are still connected to the uterus by these ligaments. Now, as far as the tube, um, yes, we use the terminology having your tubes tied, but we use we have different methods of doing tubal ligation. Sometimes we put rings on the tubes. Sometimes we put clips on the tubes. And sometimes we will t- actually tie and cut the tubes. So does that mean that one's not better than the other? Why do you have all these choices? Usually there's one best choice. Well, there are so many different choices, and we different ones have higher failure rates compared to others. And some of them are done immediately, like after having a baby, immediately postpartum, and some are able to be done laparoscopically, which is minimally invasive surgery so that, you know, you can go home with a very tiny incision. Okay, so our listeners want to know, what is the best one that doesn't fail the most so they can ask for it? So which one is best? I'm going to put you on the spot. <laughs> well, they all have a high uh, success rate. Um, the best one probably would be to have um, the laparoscopic procedure done with the clips. Okay. Adrian, did that get you what you needed? All right. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for your call and a big shout out to all those people on the eastern shore of Alabama over there. So uh, if if you were uh, if you were a couple, I'm going to ask you to be a split personality. Is it better? uh, And you y'all y'all have had your family or don't want a family or whatever the, the deal is, and you want to be permanently fixed. Is it better for the man to get fixed or the lady to get fixed? Dr. DeShazo, I think it's best for the male to get fixed. Um, in a couple, you've been together and you've discussed this decision uh, because the male, it can be done in the office. That was not the answer I was hoping for. <laughs> <laughs> Men can undergo vasectomy in the office without having to go under anesthesia. And it's not it's pretty much painless for the man to undergo a vasectomy. And see, I think a lot of ladies don't know that. I think they don't know how simple it is for guys to take care of this problem. Well, that is absolutely right. But then you have women, on the other hand, that don't want to rely on men to take care of the problem. Very well said. I won't make any commentary that will get nasty letters sent in about that one. But we'll make other commentaries right after this break. We have open lines at 1-877-672-7464, 1-877-MPB-RING. It's Ladies' Day. Give us a call.
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. mpbonline.org. MPB Think Radio. Welcome back to your source of accurate medical information. That Southern Remedy, a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, supported by an unrestricted grant. That means we can say what we want to from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Our producer is Jenny Wilburn, and we have lots of additional time to take your questions at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four with our special guest, Dr. Sheila Bolden, obstetrician gynecologist. Let's go to Jay in Rosedale. Hey, Jay. Yes. I just have a question. My wife has um, a condition called interstitial cystitis. And I wanted to get your opinion about it and what is the treatment, what can we expect. She's had laparoscopy to rule out uh, ovarian cancer. And um, um, a condition of the ovar- of the endometriosis. Right. Endometriosis. So, so what 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 are her do you know what her sept do you know what her symptoms are, Jay? Bladder and she's having lots of problems. Jay, I'm sorry, I talked over you. All right, what symptoms is she having? Lower abdominal pain. Okay, good. Thank you for that call. That is a big, big topic, and we appreciate you gave us a chance to talk about it. So what is interstitial cystitis? It seems it's epidemic. Everybody coming in the office has had that diagnosis. Well, interstitial cystitis, Jay, is a bladder pain syndrome, and it causes a lot of discomfort, especially in the pelvic area. And, you know, you have to rule out other potential causes of pelvic pain, like you mentioned, endometriosis. There's not a clear understanding of why, how this occurs, why it occurs. Um, And so there is treatment out there. It often involves um, the help of a urologist, uh, to help treat it, there's medication that can be used to treat intercystitis. There are procedures that can be done by the urologist in the bladder to also help treat that symptom. So it's thought to be some kind of autoimmune condition of the bladder where there's inflammation in the bladder wall that gives all these funky symptoms. Is that the bottom line? Uh, that's one of the the uh, theories, theories of the cause of the interstitial cystitis. And what happens if you have it for a long time? I, I, I know I had a patient that actually had to have bladder surgery because of all the uh, adhesions uh, scarring in the bladder. So that's not very common. No, it's not very common. Uh, there is, you know, pain medication and uh, oral medications that can be used, even uh, injecting lidocaine in the bladder to help uh, smooth the the layers of the bladder that causes this irritation. Okay, so the bottom line on interstitial cystitis is it's a disease of an unknown cause that results in chronic inflammation of the bladder lining and a lot of discomfort, and it's diagnosed by looking up there with a scope into the bladder, uh, sampling the tissue, uh, and it's treated with a variety of treatments, uh, and there is no best treatment. You have to sort of stick with your, usually your urologist, to find out what works. There's all kinds of different things that are tried, uh, and it is most commonly presents as a chronic pain syndrome uh, of the abdomen, just like your wife did. Hope that information is adequate. If not, 
if you'll send us an email at southernremedy at mpbonline.org, we will send you a patient information sheet on that condition that has a lot more information. By the way, like us on Facebook. We're not liked as much as we'd like to be liked, so like us on Facebook, and we'll be able to hang on to our no salary. Let's go to William at – William, where are you? On the road? Hello. Hey, William. I can barely hear you. Would you like to ask your question? We can hear you real good. My question is, is uh, my wife had had a bladder sling done three years ago, and now she's uh, she's only about 43, having four children, of course, and uh, she seems to be suffering from uh, mild incontinence. And uh, what can they do about that? Okay, we'll we'll take you we'll take you off the air where you can hear. I know that you're on the road there. Uh, so, what about that that situation? What is a bladder swing, sling? Why do you have it, and what's it supposed to do? Um, William, a bladder sling is used to correct a problem with the female anatomy that leads to urinary incontinence. And in some people with the sling, sometimes we overcorrect where they may not be able to void. Or over time, with any conditions that puts pressure on the bladder, you can see them to you can see where they start to experience incontinence again. Um, What we normally would do at that point is do another evaluation to uh, look at the bladder function and see if there's anything else that can be done to correct it. Okay, so as women age or have babies, uh, everything goes south. Everything in Mississippi ends up in Mobile Bay, including the uterus and all the various parts and the uterus, the anatomy of the uterus is related to the anatomy of the bladder, right? Yes. So if the uterus hangs down low, it can screw up the way the bladder works, right? Yes. And you can have urgency or frequency and frank incontinence when you go to the bathroom uh, and can be very embarrassing. So there are a lot of different things folks do. They do uh, hysterectomy sometime for this. And then they do these things where they jack the bladder up and reposition it with these look like hammocks, right? Yes. And every every day we see in the newspaper attorneys trying to get people to sue folks that have had these slings made with these uh, meshes and stuff. You can have them made with a mesh or you can have them made with your own body parts, right? Correct. Um, what Dr. DeCesar is talking about is that sometimes we put these hammocks – or sling um, to reposition the bladder neck to correct the anatomical defect that me that probably has caused a person to have urinary incontinence. He made reference to having babies, the weight of the uterus, and also obesity could lead to increased abdominal pressure that puts the weight on the uterus and the bladder and cause these thing and cause these uh, organs to fall down to a lower position that could lead to some of the problems that women experience. So can some people who are overweight that are having this problem improve uh, the problem just by losing weight? 
absolutely. Uh, weight loss is the key to improving a lot of different functions and decreasing risk for not only having a uterine prolapse and so forth, but heart disease, diabetes, and a number of other conditions and risk factors related to uh, female cancers as well by just simply losing weight. Right. Good point. You're listening to Dr. Sheila Bolden, who is Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and Dr. Rick, and we're here on Ladies' Day on Southern Remedy, so give us a call at one eight seven seven. Six seven two seven four six four. We're going to Oxford. Hey, Kristen. Hi. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Thanks for calling. I was wondering if there is a correlation between a diagnosis of PCOS and earlier than normal menopause. Okay. So PCOS is polycystic ov- ovarian syndrome, and uh, that's a syndrome as I understand it, Dr. Bolden, where uh, folks typically have problems with weight, irregular periods, lack of fertility, have trouble getting pregnant, uh, acne, uh, herstatism, which is hair in places that women don't like hair. And uh, and there are lots of things y'all can do to help folks if they come in uh, with this problem. It, do I have that part right? Yes, Dr. Rick, you have that part right, right, absolutely right. What happens with polycystic ovarian syndrome, a lot of women do not ovulate and have normal menstrual cycles, so they can go through a period of having something we call amenorrhea, not having cycles. Um, as far as the association with menopause, um, the lack of having periods can make you th- make a person think they're in menopause because of that. And so sometimes you don't have the, not having a period, you may have some symptoms that may be related to menopause. But as far as causing early menopause, that is not, there is not an association with early menopause and PCOS. Now where I've usually referred uh, folks to you guys with PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome, is couples with in, infertility issues the the they just cannot get pregnant and then y'all usually do some kind of basic workup and then have the infertility people work with them is that the way that works that's usually how it works um, the fact is that they're not ovulating and so when you don't ovulate you can't get pregnant and a lot of times we will use medications to help with ovulation in that patient that has PCOS. PCOS, so that they can get pregnant. Now, all of us men have estrogen and progesterone, and we have testosterone, and all of us women have the same stuff. We all got these same hormones floating around, but they're in different ratios, right? That's absolutely right. And so in women with PCOS, which one is out of whack? Is it progesterone or testosterone or both or what? They don't have enough estrogen, right? Is that the problem? Well, in PCOS, women tend to have more of the male-type hormones, the androgens, those are the ones that could lead to uh, hirsutism, which is the excess facial hair that you experience. And with these increase in these androgens, that's where some of the symptoms come in. And then also with PCOS, I, I wanted to mention, is that there's a higher association in some women with diabetes 
and having other um, endocrine disorders and elevated cholesterol as well. So we tend to screen those patients also for diabetes and hypercholesterolemia as well. And so really folks with PCOS, and you usually can see this, you can actually pick it up in your regular uh, exams that women start having when they start menstruating. There's a body habitus that makes you think of it, right? And you you can do good things for people if it's diagnosed early enough, right? Um, That's correct. Uh, Some women with PCOS tend to be more overweight, and you tend to see fat distribution around the neck and the upper body part. You can also see a darkening of the skin on the face as well in those patients. However, there are some women who are also thin that have PCOS. We'll talk about PCOS, and we'll go to Vicksburg and talk to Rosemary right after this break. We have open lines. We're at one mpb ring We'll be right back. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo. We have some open lines here. We're in the end part of our show, so if you want to get your call in, please give us a call at one 672 7464 That's 1-877-MPB ring or send us an email at Southern Remedy at I'm here with my colleague, Dr. Sheila Bolden, who's an obstetrician gynecologist uh, and expert on women's health pr- problems, and this is Women's Health Day. Let's go to Rosemary in Vicksburg. Hey, Rosemary. Hi. How are you Hello. doing? How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Little allergy problem this morning. Well, we so can fix that. Horse, that's the problem. We can fix that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, my question is, in discussing babies, grandbabies, and grandchildren a while back, uh, an acquaintance and I both have fairly new grandbabies, and she mentioned that they had given hers a hepatitis shot, her, her grandbaby a hepatitis shot when it was born. Is that routine? Is that something they do? Because I had not heard that. Okay, well, congratulations on those grandbabies. You know, the immunization schedules just keep changing. I've got a card here uh, from the uh, for the adult immunization schedules, uh, which... Uh, everybody's supposed to have uh, hepatitis immunization as a child. How early do they usually start, Dr. Bowen? Well, first we test the mom to see if she's hepatitis uh, uh, B negative. And then they usually start, um, if she's negative, then they give a dose at birth. And then they repeat another one and between one and two months. And then again at six months. 
So that one starts really early. Yes. And that's because it's so easy to pass that particular germ around, right? But that, it's, it's just everywhere. That's correct. So there's hepatitis A, which is the kind you get uh, almost like a cold. It's, a, it's a, the, All of it's transmitted by fecal oral route. That, that means you get stool, some come in contact with stool. But hepatitis A tends to be epidemic, food handlers and so forth and so on. Hepatitis B is blood transmitted and hepatitis C is blood transmitted and uh, the hepatitis A we usually get over and we're fine but B and C you don't want because those can become chronic infections and that's why we want to get the babies immunized because we can prevent it right absolutely an ounce of prevention absolutely just like grandma said let's go to Warren in Philadelphia hey Warren hey how are y'all okay are you in Philadelphia Pennsylvania or Philadelphia the real world Philadelphia in the real world. All right. Good to hear from you. Uh, I have a question about melanoma cancer. Okay. Um, my wife was diagnosed with it here about oh, six years ago, and they done a surgery to remove the cancer spots in several locations on her, uh, mainly on her abdomen. And I was wondering, you know, she goes every year and gets checked up, but how exactly how bad is it? And I'll listen to your response on the radio. Okay. Well, thanks for your call, Warren. Melanoma is a uh, skin cancer that develops in the pigmented, usually the pigmented cells of moles and other related uh, tissues. And But it sometimes could be non-pigmented. It's usually pigmented. And you think of melanoma when somebody has a uh, mole that is atypical it has funky-looking color distribution. It's asymmetrical. It's growing, uh, and especially in people who've had a lot of sun exposure. If these things are gotten very early when they first start growing and taken off, uh, usually that's the end of it. The problem is the ones that have metastasized to many places. Now, the reason that people that have melanomas uh, taken off, and then they take off a whole bunch of other moles at the same time and keep taking off moles uh, whenever they come up, is if you have one, it, there's an increased risk of having multiple ones. So the reason that every, that she needs to be seen every year and needs to have a total body skin exam herself with you helping her uh, uh, regularly is the increased risk. So if that uh, was a particular stage, one of the early stages, and had margins that were clear, uh, then the, the likelihood of that coming back after 10 years is pretty small. So that's sort of the, the poop on melanoma. And if you want to know more about it, give us a phone, uh, give us a, a email, and we'll send you a patient information uh, sheet. So we're just about out of time. We didn't have time to talk about uh, dyspareunia, and, uh, and uh, I want to get a, one one comment on that and then pick up a couple of uh, emails before we close. Uh, dyspareunia is pain with intercourse, and it's abnormal. You're not supposed to have pain with intercourse, right? That's absolutely right, Dr. DeShazo. It is pain with intercourse, and it can be due to a number of reasons. Uh, for some women, it can be due to lack of lubrication in the vagina. It could be due to having infection as well. Um so when someone experiences that, I'm, and I hate to keep saying this, it's important to see your doctor and be evaluated to see if anything else is going on that could cause the problem. Also, it can be 
related to having other social issues. Um, like if they're the relationship, if their relationship issues can also lead to some of these problems. Okay. So, uh, it can be as simple as moisturization problem, especially in older folks, but it can be related to something more serious. And that is an alarm sign. You've given us several alarm signs. Let's repeat those. The alarm signs that women should be aware of. Number one, so far as genital urinary symptoms would be, you said, abnormal if, ure, uterine bleeding. Abnormal uterine bleeding, um, having pain in the pelvis. Um, also having dryness. Uh, we talked about menopause and having hot flashes and symptoms like that. Um, then so far as breast, breast tenderness, uh, uh, breast discharge, those are the things that you need to pay attention to your body and see your doctor. Now, anybody that's had papillomavirus infection, which most women have now, uh, is at an increased risk for cervical cancer, right? Yes, there is an association between human papillomavirus and cervical cancer. That's why we now have a vaccine that is administered to young ladies between the ages of 9 to 26 to help prevent cervical cancer. Uh, this vaccine protects against two of the high-risk type viruses that have been associated with cervical cancer, although there are hundreds of HPV viruses out there. Uh, HPV being a virus, that means it could, your body can also clear the virus. So it's important to have the regular screenings that are recommended uh, for pap smears. All right. So that's very important. You can prevent a lot of havoc by getting that immunization in your grandkid. Speaking of grandkids, uh, Rosemary didn't hear the answer on the hepatitis thing. And just, uh, Rosemary, the that was the right time to get the hepatitis shot. We're giving them to infants now. So that's the rule, not the exception, so that was okay. Carol of Jackson has just sent us an email and wants to know what the symptoms of menopause are. She wonders whether she's got it. Hi, Carol. The symptoms of menopause, uh, one of the primary symptoms is hot flashes or night sweats. That's when you get that heat sensation that rises up from the neck up and or break out in a bead of sweats. Also, women can experience vaginal dryness, um, mood swings and mood changes as well. But one of the symptoms, the primary symptom that women complain about is hot flashes. want to thank my special guest, our special guest, Dr. Sheila Bolden from University of Mississippi Medical Center, and you for listening to today's program. We'll be back again next week with a, a really hot topic, men's health. <laughs> of course, Southern Remedy is a production of MPB Think Radio and is funded in part by the financial support of our listeners. Thanks to our producer, Jenny Wilbur, and we'll see you again next week.